To be able to explain everything related to trust, I need to first complete describing the eight laws of trust and the six components of trustworthiness. These are the foundation to understanding trust. So I already covered the first uh, four laws of trust, one through four, in season one, episode five. Those are the relative components. I covered the trust law number six in season one, episode three. And in this episode, episode eight, I will complete the explanation of trust laws five, seven, and eight, and then I'll summarize all eight. In the second season, I'll go through the six components of trustworthiness. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 8 of The Trust Show. I'm your host, Yoram Solomon, a researcher of trust and the author of The Book of Trust. In this educational podcast, I will challenge you to think differently about trust through the eight laws of trust and the six components of trustworthiness. I will share my own stories, experiences of others, trust research, and sometimes simply reflect on a news item. Through all of those, I will show you how to build trust, be trusted, and know who to trust. Because the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? First, I have to tell you that I'm really enjoying recording this podcast. I'm getting a lot of positive responses. I'm starting to see that I'm having some very loyal following and I'm getting comments and I'll try to address comments, uh, especially questions in the future episodes. Uh, I have a lot of content to add. In fact, one of my biggest frustrations is that for every one episode that I record, I write the outline for four or five more episodes. So I have a long list of episodes. I can't wait to get through them but we're going to go one by one. With this, in this episode, I'm going to start with going after or over law number, trust law number five, trust is transferable. So first, a question. Did your parents, when you were young, did your parents ever tell you to never, ever get into a car with a stranger? I bet they did, right? And did you? Did you ever get into a car with a stranger? The answer is yes. If this was a visual, I would put a, a the logo of Uber. Because you go to Uber, you don't know the driver. You don't know anything about the driver. How come you do enter a car with a stranger? I'll tell you why. One, you trust Uber. And with all of their issues, they did. They do some background checking on their drivers. And you trust the 973 people who gave this driver a good positive review. You trust them. And because you trust them and and in the 973 people, it's kind of a blind trust because you don't know any of those 973. You don't even know who they are. Trust is transferable because you trust them. You trust the driver. How about when you get a Facebook friend request? You know, somebody wants to connect with you. There are a lot of bogus accounts. There are a lot of uh, accounts that don't really exist and they're trying to get access to your friends list. So before you accept a request from someone you don't know, I'm not talking about somebody you know and already trust. When you get a request from somebody, a friend request from somebody you don't know, what's the first thing that you do? 
You go and you look at the mutual friends that you have, those friends that you have in common, and you ask yourself, do I trust them? Because there are people who would just accept anybody's friend request on Facebook, and there are people who don't. And so if you see that the only people that you have in common, the only friends you have with common in common with this uh, with this person asking for uh, a friend, asking for your friendship, at least on Facebook, uh, if you see that all those people are people who accept just about anyone, you may not be accepting it. But if you see that those are people that you trust and you know that they're screening, they're very selective in who they would add as a friend on Facebook and they have this person as a friend, then probably that person is okay to be friends with. They're not going to fall into uh, Robin Dunbar's 150 casual friends or the five closest friends uh, that you have, but they would feed into those uh, probably 5,000 friends that uh, you, you don't really know who they are. You cannot even put a name to a face, but you will accept their friend's request. Same with Angie, Angie's List or any other uh, system like that or, or app like that. Uh, you will take a professional, you will hire a professional to fix your refrigerator, your AC, plumbing or anything else based on the reviews that they have. And one of the things that you pay attention to is uh, because you don't know those people, is not only how good the reviews are, so if those people tell you that this is a five-star review or an A-plus review versus if they tell you it's a one-star review, but you also look at how many. How many people gave this person, this professional, high reviews? Same applies to product reviews on Amazon or any other, eBay, any other shopping uh, site, where you look at the number of reviews and you look at the level, the ratings. And based on that, again, you don't know those people, but you trust the number of people who trust this other person and gave a review so that you can trust this product or this vendor, the seller. Same with movies. You know, life is too short. We can't watch every movie that was uh, created. There's not enough time. So when you watch a movie, how do you decide which movie to, to watch? I mean, is it purely based on the uh, promos uh, or is it based on uh, people telling you, hey, you should watch this movie? Because when somebody says, watch this movie and you know that you have a relatively similar taste in movies, or in other words, you trust them with their taste in movies, then you would uh, go and watch that movie. So it really depends on how much you trust the other person and how much they trust uh, the third person, the person that you are considering trusting. So I'll ask you this question. What would you trust more? 973 reviews by people you don't know or five reviews by people you know and trust in the context of what the other person that you want to trust and they trust and they tell you uh, is uh, reliable or trustworthy. You'd probably prefer the five reviews by people that you know and trust in that context. So keep that in mind that uh, trust is transferable, but there is quantity and there's quality. So there is the level of trust, not only the level of trust that they have in the other person, but the level of trust that you have in them. So we go back to Robin Dunbar's research. Uh, are those some of the 150 casual friends? Are those in the top five? If it's one somebody in the top five, you trust them a lot more? I look at this as a formula. 
And the formula is, goes like this. The level of trust that I have in person, let's say person B, is the product of the level of trust I have in person A multiplied by the number of the level of trust that person A, A has in person B. Let me say it again. So if I if if there is let's say John and Mary and I need to consider whether I can trust Mary. And what I know is that John trusts Mary. Let's say the trust is measured between zero and 100%. John trusts Mary by 50%. I trust John by 60%. The level I'm willing to trust Mary is going to be 60% times 50% or 30%. I know I'm getting a little too much, uh, too deep into math, but that's how I look at it. The level of trust I will have in someone I don't know is the product of multiplying the level of trust I have in a person I do know times the level of trust they have in that person I don't know and consider trusting. There is another phenomena that would fit into the definition of transferable trust. I, I talked about the fact that I trust you because I trust someone else who trusts you. But there is also something else. I trust you to do X because you earn my trust to do Y. I see that a lot. Uh, my main thing that I talk about in keynotes or workshops, obviously, is trust, which is what I've been researching for the last 13 years and, and is covered in the majority of my 14 books, including my PhD dissertation. So I earned your trust, or let's assume that I earned your trust to come and talk and, and consult and, and teach, educate you about trust. What about strategy? So I know strategy and, and I have facilitated strategy, facilitated strategy sessions. I'm in a much higher likelihood to be hired by someone to facilitate a strategy workshop because they trust me with trust, my working trust. So trust is transferable not only between person to person, but also between context and context. You trust a certain person in a certain context, you trust them more than zero, even in another context. The level of trust of trust that I have in this other person, as I said before, it is uh, the product of multiplying how much I trust the person I do know uh, times how much they trust the person I don't know and wish to trust. That product, the total, has to be high enough to mitigate the level of risk as it's translated into fear that I need to overcome. So keep that in mind that the level of trust that I need is enough for me to overcome that risk. But even if I don't trust them enough to completely compensate for the level of risk or fear that I need to overcome, I'm still not starting at zero. And remember that if my level of trust in another person does not start at zero, it starts higher than zero, then as trust is reciprocal, as... uh, Trust law number six would say the end result when when my trust in the other person and their level of trustworthiness merge will still be higher than if I started at zero. Trust law number seven, trust is dynamic. And the fact that trust is dynamic is one of the key 
uh, differentiators of how I look at trust compared to uh, what most of the literature, uh, how most of the literature uh, talks about trust. And I'm going to break the dynamic component of trust into two. One is what happens between interactions. Between interactions, our level of trust in the other person declines. I can actually say that their level of trustworthiness in my eyes declines. And the reason is because this is a defense mechanism. The defense mechanism is protecting us from things we don't know from things that may have changed. So if you saw me a year ago and we interacted and and somehow I built a certain level of trustworthiness in your eyes that led to a certain level of trust that you have in me, but since then a year had passed, you would be more reserved you would be you would tend to trust me a little less because things may have changed. Things may have changed in me, my personality, you know, whatever went through, whatever I went through in my life. And you have to ask yourself, do you still know me? Do you still know me enough to trust me the same level that you trusted me a year ago? If this is on a professional level and I'm very professional in a certain area, you have to ask yourself, I used to be a year ago, very proficient and very up to date and up to speed on the latest development and evolution in in the latest technologies that I'm responsible for. Am I still that up to date? Am I still that relevant? And so because time has passed, over that time, gradually, as a defense mechanism, the level of trust that you have in me has declined. But the most powerful change in the level of trust happens during an interaction. This is the dynamic part during an interaction. Those are the biggest, those are the fastest changes. They are determined by three components. And again, I'll talk more about that in season two. And those are time, intimacy, and positivity of an interaction. So we're now talking about a very specific interaction. They are the fastest initially. So the the first encounter, the first meeting is when you have the biggest chance to grow or hurt your trustworthiness in another person's uh, eyes. And, and, And the easiest way to describe that, the best way to describe it is that you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. So just think about that first impression. And again, I'll talk more about that in season two when I talk about time. Trust law number eight, trust is two-sided. Trust is also the product of my trustability, which is my willingness to trust other people by your trustworthiness. There's almost nothing that you can do about the former, my willingness to trust other people, and everything you can do about the latter, your trustworthiness. So my the level of trust that I have in you is the product of my willingness to trust other, other people. I call this trustability and your trustworthiness, at least in uh, through my eyes. Now, some people are more trusting, some people are less. You know that if, if you look at the friends that you have, especially those close ones that that you would know a lot more about them, you know that some of them would trust more, are, are more tending to trust people and some are less trusting. So that's a personal difference. 
By the way, some people perceive risk and fear differently than uh, in th than, than other people and therefore they trust differently because trust is what compensates for the fear to make you feel safe and get you out of danger right so if for example we're talking about financial risk and financial risk is very objective you know if uh, you put you're making an investment in a company and the investment required is ten thousand dollars well if your annual salary is eighty thousand dollars that ten thousand dollars is a lot of money and you consider that a lot of risk a high risk and so you need much more higher a much higher level of trust or trustability before you spend ten thousand dollars regardless of the company that you're going to be trusting you just need a higher level of trust to put ten thousand dollars out of the eighty thousand that you make in a year but for a person who's making a million dollars in a year the level of risk that they perceive as fear in spending $10,000 is much, much lower. So their trustability actually is, is higher or they require a much lower level of trustworthiness in order to trust enough and invest those $10,000. We have to keep in mind that we are also the sum of our experiences. We went through different things in life, you and I went through different things in life. And for those reasons, you might be more trusting, a more trusting person. And, and I, I really don't like saying this in a very generic way because trust is continuous, it's contextual, it's really relative. So you might be more trusting than me or less trusting than me, but we're different because of our experiences. And I'm going to give you a few examples. And by the way, one thing that was found in 2019, PEW research uh, done a study, a, a survey in one part of that, that survey, it was a survey about trust, trust in America. And one of the statements they put in that survey was most people can't be trusted. So most people cannot be trusted. And the question is, do you agree? Do you strongly agree? Do you disagree? Strongly disagree? Or are you neutral? Here's an interesting thing. People over the age of 65 or 65 and over, 29% agreed that most people can't be trusted. 29%. People at the ages of 18 to 29, so we're talking younger people, the young generation, 60% of them agreed that most people cannot be trusted. This is more than double. So trustability is not only a personal thing, but you can see that it's a generational thing. And as we move in time, newer generation tend to trust less. I don't consider myself a very trusting person. There, there are areas where I trust, and obviously there are people I can trust, but that's that's a function of their trustworthiness. I'm talking about my trustability, my willingness to trust other people. And, and I try to ask myself, why is it? Uh, why am I less trusting? There's one story that has come to mind. I was born on January of 1965. In December of 1964, just a month before, my father was hospitalized. My mother was nine months pregnant with me, but my father was hospitalized with uh, very severe pain and in one of his kidneys. 
Well, the doctors looked around and uh, they decided that he had kidney stones uh, that were so significant that the kidney had to be removed. So they removed his kidney. Uh, he went through some radiation after that uh, because of the removal of the kidney, which, uh, you know, we accepted as, as normal. He lived 30 years after that. And when he passed away 30 years later in 1994, we said, you know, being Jewish, we sit uh, what's called Shiva, seven days, uh, sit and mourn uh, in my mother's house. And as we were going through stuff, you know, there's not a lot to do when you're sitting for seven days. She found uh, documents dating back to that December 1964. And when she started looking at those documents, she found something interesting. She found terminology that I should say that about two years earlier, she had cancer uh, that was cured at that time. And uh, she, that, that terminology from 1964 start, started to sound familiar to her. So she asked a family member, um, my, my brother-in-law, and uh, who has a medical degree, and he said, those terms that you see in the 1964 paperwork say kidney cancer, not kidney stones, kidney cancer. Now, that obviously came as a shock. And so immediately, my mother turned to a family, a very close family member who was around at the hospital at the time in 1964. And she called her and she said, you know, you remember back in 1964 in December, did the doctors ever talk to you? And that family member said, uh, remember, it's a very close family member. She said, yes, they did. And my mother asked, did they ever tell you that he had cancer? And that family member said, yes. And my mother was shocked and she said, why didn't they tell us? And so that family member, and you have to remember, we're talking 1964 and everything was done uh, really, I mean, there, there was no HIPAA and there's no patient uh, confidentiality or anything like that. Uh, and uh, there was this this overall uh, theme of, uh, you know, we're, we're going to keep secrets and, and not tell people who don't need to know something. So the doctor did go to my, my uh, relative and told her, listen, you seem like a close family member. Are you a close family, family member? She said, yes. Well, here's the deal. He has cancer. Uh, he's in no shape to take it. He's in under a lot of pain. She, my mother, who's nine months pregnant, uh, this could hurt the pregnancy or I don't know what. She's not in shape to take it. So we're telling you, you tell us, can we tell them, any of them? And my relative said, no, I'll tell them when the time is right. Now, you would think that in the next 30 years, the opportunity would come up to tell us. And, you know, she may have forgotten it and somehow, you know, never got to it. And, and, and I'm sure that the reasons are, are innocent and, and good reasons. But the bottom line is, think about this. Think about how many times did my sister and I fill medical forms. And when we were asked about a history of cancer in our family, before my mother had cancer, which was only a couple of years earlier, we answered with no. 
We did not check the box and therefore our medical history was incorrect and our physicians never knew that there was a history of cancer. And I know that kidney cancer is not necessarily hereditary and, and we probably would not get it if my father had it. But still, that hurts trust. That hurts trustability. And I believe that part of it in me is why I don't trust people as much as maybe the average, less than the average. You know, another story is I remember uh, right before I got elected, right before I ran for office in 2015, uh, I was about to buy a ranch, a piece of land in Texas. And so I started looking around and I looked for a real estate agent that specializes in buying land as opposed to buying homes or apartments or anything like that. And so... The first real estate agent didn't have time to me for me. The second one didn't do a lot more than what I did by just searching, you know, on the web. The third one found a great piece of land for me, 40 acres, and said, this is a great piece and gave me the details. I went and I looked and through Google Maps, I, I saw this line cutting through that piece of land and I started zooming in and zooming in and zooming in and lo and behold railroad tracks right there on on what I was going to buy as a piece of land so I called the real estate agent and I said you know those are railroad tracks and she said yes they split the property into 24 acres and 16 acres and I said look how they split it is not the issue the issue is that we're not in the wild west where having railroad tracks going through your land is a positive this is a negative this splits my land and and I I lost any confidence in her but the bottom line is I'm looking at four real estate agents that were completely unhelpful. What do you think that does to my trustability in real estate agents, specifically who deal with land, with land purchases? Four of them, that's four out of four, have let me down, proved to be not trustworthy. So you have to think about the fact that the more people that let you down, the less trustability you have. So it's it's less that, that you trust each one of them less because they're not trustworthy, other, uh, obviously, but it's that you tend to trust people less. And if trust is the product of your trustability and other people's trustworthiness, your the level of trust you're willing to extend to another person at the same level of trustworthiness is lower because you're less willing to trust. I talk about the fact that uh, you start with trust in, in season one, episode three, that you should start with trust and the higher level of trust you start with, regardless of the trustworthiness of the other person, you're going to end up due to reciprocity of trust and trustworthiness, you're going to end up at a higher level. But if your trustworthiness, if your trustability is lower, you're going to end at a lower place. Now, I said at the beginning of, of this little segment that there's almost nothing that you can do about my trustability. And I say almost nothing because trustability is really your trust in a class of people, a group of people, not specific individuals, but a group of people, real estate agents, family relatives. It's a class of people. You are part of that class. Whatever you do, you're part of that class for me. 
And if you prove yourself to be more trustworthy, just but a tiny bit, you will increase my own trustability, my willingness to trust people, because you're that light at the end of the tunnel. I can see that there is that one light. And as a result, my unwillingness to trust other people is going to subside a little and I'm going to trust other people. My trustability is going to be a little higher. So it's not that there's nothing that you can do about my trustability. There is almost nothing. You have very small impact on it. And we are finally at the end of covering the eight laws of trust. I described all of them. Law of trust number one, trust is continuous. It's not binary. Trust law number two, trust is contextual. Trust law number three, trust is personal. It only happens between two people completely independently of between any other two people. Trust law number four, trust is asymmetrical. I may trust you more or less than you trust me. It's not that reciprocal my trust in you versus your trust in me. These first four, continuous, contextual, personal, and asymmetrical, those are what makes trust relative. And I covered all four of those in season one, episode five. Trust law number five, trust is transferable. I covered it in this episode. Trust law number six, trust is reciprocal. Trust and trustworthiness are reciprocal. And you're going to see throughout this podcast, the different episodes, the reciprocity of trust with other things. But trust and trustworthiness are reciprocal. And I covered that in season one, episode three. Trust law number seven, trust is dynamic. I covered it in this episode. And finally, trust law number eight, trust is two-sided. Trust is the product of my trustability and your trustworthiness. I covered it in this episode. Understanding these eight laws of trust will help you understand everything that I will say in future episodes about trust. Obviously, I want to get to the six components of trustworthiness, but I'll do that in season two. And I want to to again remind you that what makes my approach to trust unique through the eight laws of trust and the six components of trustworthiness is that trust is relative and not universal. And trust is dynamic and not static. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll make sure to answer it or find the answer to it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. That's Y-O-R-A-M at thetrustshow.com. If you like this podcast episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get new episodes. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings would help others who are looking for a podcast just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my online course at trustedatwork.com. Find my books on Amazon or go to my website, yoramsolomon.com. And remember one thing, the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.